You are listening to Lighthearted, the official podcast of the United States Lighthouse Society. My name is Jeremy Dontremont. Welcome. My co-host today is Michelle Jewell Shaw, Board of Directors member of the American Lighthouse Foundation. Hi, Michelle. Hi, Jeremy, and hello to all of our listeners out there. Today is December 5th, 2021, and this is episode 150 of Lighthearted. We'll be talking to today's guests about two lighthouses in Georgia, St. Simons Island and Tybee Island. I recently made a trip down there to Georgia, enjoyed it very much. So how's your holiday season going, Michelle? It's going pretty well. I'm just finishing up one of my classes for school and gearing up for a Disney vacation coming up next weekend. Ooh, wow. That's been delayed a couple of times, hasn't it? It has been, yes. This will be the third time that it's been booked to go in the last year and a half. So, yeah. Well, third time's the charm. Third time's the charm. Yeah, so you're going to have a great time. Absolutely. Yeah, that's wonderful. So, has anything interesting happened on this date lighthouse history? Yes, it has. On December 5th, 1941, a memo was issued by the U.S. Navy just two days before the attack on Pearl Harbor. The memo said that the Navy was considering the idea of putting lookouts at lighthouses. The Coast Guard went under the jurisdiction of the Navy during World War II. A short time later, the lighthouses were blacked out so they wouldn't aid enemy vessels along our coast. Eventually, as many as 24,000 people patrolled the United States coastline utilizing lighthouses and life-saving stations as lookout posts. Also, on December 5, 1901, the American animator Walt Disney was born in Chicago. He once said, and I quote, The difference between winning and losing is most often not quitting. End quote. Speaking of Disney World. Isn't that funny? Oh, wow. So let's talk about our first interview today. As I mentioned earlier, my wife Charlotte and I took a trip to Georgia a few weeks ago. We stayed in Savannah and took some side trips around the area. I had never been around there before, and I love Savannah and the other areas we explored. Uh, St. Simon's Island, Tybee Island, they're really beautiful. Let's tell everyone about St. Simon's Lighthouse and our first guests today. Sure, Jeremy. St. Simon's is part of a cluster of barrier islands located off the southeastern Georgia coast. St. Simon's has year-round residents, but it's also become a tourist destination known for its beaches and historic sites. The original lighthouse on St. Simon's was a 75-foot tall tower that was built in 1810. When Confederate troops retreated from the area in 1861, they blew up the lighthouse so it wouldn't serve as an aid to navigation for Union warships. The 104-foot-tall brick tower that stands today was built between 1868 and 1872. Orlando Poe, chief engineer for the U.S. Lighthouse Board, supervised the design. Charles Kleski, the architect of many outstanding buildings in Georgia, served as the contractor on the project until his death in 1871. The light was electrified in 1934 and automated in 1953, and in 1971, the Keeper's Cottage was conveyed to Glynn County. The Coastal Georgia Historical Society spent three years restoring the house and was turned into a museum. The light remains an active aid to navigation with a third-order Fresnel lens still in use. In 2004, ownership of the lighthouse was transferred to the Coastal Georgia Historical Society. 
Today, visitors can climb the lighthouse and visit the museum to learn the fascinating history of coastal Georgia through rare artifacts, historical photographs, and interactive exhibits. Sandy White is the education director for the Coastal Georgia Historical Society and its museums, including the St. Simons Lighthouse Museum. I had a chance to speak with Sandy in her office inside the Keeper's House at St. Simons a few weeks ago. Let's listen to that now. So I'm here at the St. Simons Lighthouse in Georgia this morning, which is really exciting for me. It's just a, a beautiful, beautiful place, and uh, my second day ever in Georgia. I'm uh, really enjoying it here. And I'm here with Sandy White, who's the Education Director for the Coastal Georgia Historical Society. And the, uh, the lighthouse, the St. Simons Lighthouse and Museum here is one of the, the properties managed by the Society. Thank you so much for hosting me here, Sandy. Thanks for being with me on the podcast. It's my pleasure. Happy to be here. If we could just start with a little bit about you. I'm interested in what brought you to your position with the Coastal Georgia Historical Society. And you told me earlier you're uh, not not a Georgia native originally, right? Yes, I'm not a native of Georgia. I'm a native of um, South Florida. So I grew up um, outside of Fort Lauderdale near the Hillsboro Inlet Lighthouse. So I've always been near a lighthouse for, for most of my life and all of my childhood. Um, I went to Vanderbilt uh, with a degree in history, and then I decided to go into museums. So I went to George Washington University in D.C., which is a great place to be a museum person. Uh, got my master's in museum studies with a specialty in education, uh, programming, and curatorial development. And here I am at the Lighthouse. This is actually my first full-time job um, with the Historical Society, so I'm the education director here. Um, and I get to wear many hats, which mm-hmm. is one of the things that drew me to this position and, and has kept me here. Yeah. And you get to be sort of a, a lighthouse keeper. Yeah, that's you know. right. My office is actually the only office for the Historical Society that's in the lighthouse keeper's house. Mm-hmm. Um, so I get a wonderful historic atmosphere and uh, get mistaken for a lighthouse keeper very often, despite not having a beard and a long coat on. So were lighthouses uh, an interest of yours? Were they kind of on your radar before you got this position? No, I think I kind of lucked into it. I've always enjoyed being by the coast and by the water. Certainly, that's one of the great things about the job is having a wonderful view each time I come to work in the Mm -hmm. morning. Um, But lighthouses have definitely been um, growing on me as I've worked here. I'd not taken a trip to see a lighthouse in particular until I started working here. But since I've worked here, I've taken several vacations that center around, hey, there's a lighthouse there. Let's uh, let's go and see it, Um, which sometimes annoys my husband, but sometimes Uh (laughs) makes it for an interesting trip. Yeah, I know what that could be like. But I went to Tybee Lighthouse yesterday and this today, and they're they're two world-class lighthouses. So beautiful. So what sort of things do you do in your role as education director? Everything that ties with education, adult and children alike. So I am the volunteer manager. I train, uh, schedule and recruit all of our volunteers here, the docents and the administrative volunteers. I also uh, schedule school tours. So I lead school tours and um, help develop all of that. And then uh, additionally, any programming, lectures, field trips, you name it, anything that we do here that has to do with the history of coastal Georgia in general. Mm -hmm. I have my hands in helping to plan um, our exhibits and our programs. So in addition to the Lighthouse and Museum, the Coastal Georgia Historical Society manages, I believe, a couple of other sites. 
We have a, a building that's our administrative offices. We call the A.W. Jones Heritage Center. It's mostly our event hall and actually the museum store for the lighthouse. So we can use all the former keepers offices and house as um, as museum space. Mm-hmm. But um, our other property is the World War II Homefront Museum. Mm-hmm. It's located on East Beach on St. Simons in the historic Coast Guard Station. Uh, so the Coast Guard Station was active from 1936 to 1994. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a Roosevelt-style station, so one of those um, classic WPA project stations uh, built during Roosevelt's presidency. And it was uh, just finished in 2018. We did a huge restoration and turned it into the World War II Homefront Museum, which tells the story of our county's job in World War II, which includes uh, having uh, two naval air stations. So we had a naval air station that hosted um, K-class airships, Mm -hmm. Uh, so blimps for the U.S. Navy. Uh, We're only one of five airship bases on the U.S. East Coast here Mm -hmm. in Glynn County, Uh, NAS Glencoe, it was called. On St. Simons, there was a naval air station with fighter pilot training at first, and then later on, advanced radar training. And then we also had a Liberty Shipyard. So we mm. built 85 Liberty ships in less than three years uh, over in Brunswick. The J.A. Jones Shipyard was hugely important in helping uh, create a supply line uh, over to the battlefields in Europe. Um, so lots of stuff happened in our little county. Yeah. Uh, we're incredibly proud of it and happy to tell the story there. I want to get to the lighthouse very soon, but if we could just uh, talk a little bit about the general history of St. Simons. Obviously, Native Americans lived here. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I understand later the English, Spanish, and French all played a role. Can you fill in a, a bit uh, some of the highlights of the early history of St. Simons? Absolutely. So St. Simons exists um, on what a lot of people call the debated land. So it's this border between English colonial America and then Spanish colonial Florida. But even before that, as you mentioned, Native Americans, this is also sort of a borderland for Native American groups. Um, you have the Wale and the Mokama, which are um, closer towards the Timucuan Indians in, in Jacksonville area, Florida, and the Wale are, are more northerly Indians. So they're kind of coexisting here on St. Simons. These these Georgia islands, these barrier islands um, are both sort of north and south. And so they're all kind of here at various points in time. Um, and the Native Americans draw Spanish missionaries. Mm-hmm. So we have quite a few Spanish missions that existed on the island. Uh, eventually, pirates came and decided that the Spanish didn't need to be there. And so the Spanish actually fled back to St. Augustine, taking some Native American groups with them. Um, and that left the island deserted for the English. Uh, and so James Oglethorpe is the founder of the colony of Georgia. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he lands at Savannah and he founds the city of Savannah. And then he comes down to St. Simons and he founds what uh, is called the town of Frederica. We refer to it today as Fort Frederica. So it's a fortified town mm-hmm. um, and a garrison of English troops are there. And then some colonists are there as well. Uh, and that exists for quite a while. Today, it's a national monument uh, to preserve the site of the original Fort Frederica, one of the original colonial sediments of the state of Georgia. On a history here. Thank you for summing that up in uh, probably record time. But <laughs> There's definitely a lot of history on the island. It's one of the, um, the great things about... Uh, coming here is you've got a deep history in, in all sorts of areas. Yeah. Well, another part of the history is the Gullah history. Mm-hmm. Uh, could you tell me a little bit about that? Sure. So um, here in Georgia, we would actually refer to us specifically as the Geechee. Um, mm-hmm. So it's Gullah Geechee is the uh, the term referred to generally as the um, African-American peoples mm-hmm. um, of the low country area. So South Carolina down into North Florida. 
Um, and Georgians particularly refer to themselves as Geechee. Um, so Gullah Geechee peoples are descendants of enslaved people that mm-hmm. lived here in the Low Country, particularly on the Sea Islands. So the Sea Islands, without causeways, without really easy access to um, water transportation even, uh, became pretty isolated. And you have these African-Americans that are living and working um, in large numbers, obviously, on plantations on the Sea Islands. They retain a lot of their African heritage, um, their cultural customs, the way that they speak, their religious traditions. And that all gets passed down through the years um, and really puts a stamp on the communities that live on the islands and in the low country in general. Mm-hmm. Um, so today we have the Gullah Geechee National Heritage Corridor that runs through the sites all along this southern coast and uh, celebrates the uniqueness of all of those communities. Yeah, that's another very important aspect of culture around here. And uh, we could, again, we could talk all day about uh, generally about St. Simon's and all the the culture and history here, but let's talk about the lighthouse. Sure. Since we are, this is a podcast that's supposed to be all about lighthouses. So we'll have sure. to do another history podcast later. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's it. That's um, you've probably have you done interviews for history podcasts? I okay. have. I, yes. I figured you probably have. Yeah. Yeah. But let's talk about the lighthouse. The original lighthouse here was built in 1810, mm-hmm. right? And there was a man named James Gould who played. Uh, really a dual role uh, in the early history of the lighthouse. Can you tell me a bit about that? Absolutely. James Gould uh, is known as sort of the builder of the first lighthouse. So he would have designed and led, uh, been like the contractor of the first lighthouse. Uh, So they started in 1807 and it was finished in 1810. And at that point, he was then appointed as the first keeper of the St. Simon's Lighthouse. He is originally from Massachusetts. So he's he's down here, um, not necessarily for the lighthouse, but doing other business down here, mainly timbering and uh, gets recruited into designing the lighthouse. Um, So he's a a businessman. He's a young man interested um, in staying here. uh, And he also knows a good thing when he sees it. So he realizes that the money is not necessarily in lighthouse keeping. um, And so he becomes a plantation owner at that time, which really fits the island and what was going on here. Mm -hmm. So he owns Black Banks Plantation, and he actually trains uh, some of the enslaved people that work there that he owns to run the lighthouse. So he's the first official lighthouse keeper. We have some other lighthouse keepers after him for the first lighthouse, but we also know that there are um, unnamed African-American keepers mm-hmm. uh, that were here during James Gould's keeper period. Tenure. Uh-huh. Okay. I understand the first lighthouse was constructed of tabby, and that's a, a term we don't hear so much uh, in New England where I live. For listeners who don't know, can you explain what tabby is? Certainly. Tabby is uh, essentially a concrete mixture. It's made of lime, sand, oyster shells, and water. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it looks like concrete that oyster shell has been mixed into. um, And it forms pretty much like concrete. Depending on how much liquid the mixture gets, it can be formed into floors, uh, can be formed into blocks, it can be um, poured into molds, as you might do for concrete, uh, Mm -hmm. and then it creates a pretty strong mixture. Mm Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of buildings built of tabby in the South, right? There are, yes. Yeah. So it's originally a Native American method mm-hmm. of construction that then uh, plantation owners start co-opting and they figure out basically how to make tabby again. Uh, and because there are so many oyster shells here and shells in general, you can make lime by burning oyster shells. Okay. So they burn oyster shells, not only from the oysters that they're eating, but all these Native American um, shell middens, which mm-hmm. are trash piles essentially, have really old oyster shells that are just, you know, according to people in the 1800s, just sitting around. Um, So they start taking their shell middens um, and burning them to create 
um, the lime for Tabby. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. So what happened to that first original lighthouse here? The lighthouse was blown up. <laughs> so uh, long story short, so 1861, we've got um, some Confederates that are stationed here on the island at uh, what's called Fort Brown on the southern end of the island just by the lighthouse. And they end up retreating. So out along the southern coast is a Union blockade, a Navy blockade. And just like with most lighthouses, uh, they decide they don't want the Union to be able to use it. And so for whatever reason here, we know um, written in the records is that they blew it down. I say they blew it up because it sounds more fun. Um, but regardless of how they did it, the lighthouse was completely destroyed. So they mm-hmm. had taken out the lens that's hidden. If anybody happens to find the St. Simon's Lighthouse original lens, obviously we'd love to have it. That's a, a mystery um, for all time. And the lighthouse was destroyed for the duration of the war. Blew it up, blew it down. I think it amounts to the same thing. (laughs) So when the lighthouse was rebuilt, Savannah gray brick was used, right? What is Savannah gray brick? Savannah gray brick is sort of refers essentially to the color and the the concentration of things in the brick. So uh, it's the specific type of color that we have. Obviously, it comes from Savannah since it's called Savannah gray. We are not sure where our brick was made. It possibly could have been made in Savannah, but it's essentially almost an early kind of trademark, uh, Savannah gray brick. So you might think of like Cherokee color brick or things like that. Uh, Savannah gray is one of the early brick colors. And was it largely made by enslaved people? Is that is that right? So for this lighthouse, um, it would have been made uh, by probably formerly enslaved. So they had a couple of different crews. The lighthouse took between right. 1867 okay. and 1872. Right, of build. course. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. 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 The original lighthouse probably also would have had um, been contracted people, um, enslaved people from the plantations around the island. Mm-hmm. And the Savannah gray bricks were larger than than usual bricks we're familiar with, right? Or are they not the ones you have here? Maybe not. I, I know that- I think ours are. I've actually never been asked that question. I think okay. ours are kind of regular size. I was at Cockspur Lighthouse yesterday, and they're definitely uh, probably about one and a half times the size of regular bricks. Hmm. But maybe that maybe that's not, not always true. Cockspur was built prior to the war, correct? Yes. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. So the Civil War has a lot. Um, the brick manufacturing changes mm-hmm. um, during the war. Um, so we call this Savannah Gray Brick, but again, we're not sure where it's made. Mm-hmm. And so after the war, it almost exclusively just refers to the color, which depends on what you put into it. Right. Um, because the brick manufacturing has changed or, or doesn't exist. So they might actually be a different style of brick mm-hmm. than ours. Right. Yeah, I, I thought it was really interesting how they were larger and a little bit sort of uneven. Mm. So the designer of the 1872 tower here uh, was Orlando Poe, who was a very important figure in lighthouse history. What's significant about Orlando Poe? Gosh, Orlando Poe, um, you know, looms large here at the St. Simon's Lighthouse. We uh, think that he's significant, particularly for us, because we don't have a lot of Southern Orlando Poe lighthouses. We look a lot like Great Lakes lighthouses, which really makes us unique in terms of being a Southern Ocean lighthouse. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's there as the you know superintendent of the U.S. Lighthouse Service, the uh, the main engineer, and um, he was a Union engineer um, in the in the Civil War, mm-hmm. and is finding a job afterwards and ends up in the lighthouse service and really is credited with doing a lot to um, stabilize and uh, modernize the design of lighthouses. Right, right. I know he's definitely one of the, the big names in the history of lighthouse design and building. 
Let's touch on a story that happened here in 1880. I think there was actually a duel here at the light station. There was. It's our most infamous event from the history of the St. Simon's Lighthouse. So um, we always had two keepers. um, And at that time, our head keeper was Frederick Osborne, and the assistant keeper was John Stevens. And Frederick Osborne had been here for several years. He had gone through a couple of assistants, had some, you know, apprentices, and John Stevens happened to be a local, which we think figures into the story. Uh, So he's from St. Simon's Island. So they're both living here and working in the keeper's dwelling. And at that time, uh, there was an open staircase in the middle. So they didn't have a ton of privacy between each other. And as we know, they uh, did not like each other for some reason. So they get into an argument one Sunday morning. They um, get into such a big argument that they start threatening each other. And Frederick Osborne tells his subordinate, John Stevens, that uh, if he doesn't go inside and calm down, it's going to come to more than words. And he threatens him with a pistol. John Stevens doesn't take kindly to that, clearly. He goes back inside uh, to the keeper's dwelling up to his um, apartment in the building, grabs his shotgun, walks back out to the front porch where they had been arguing. Frederick Osborne had walked away from him from quite a distance. John Stevens uh, still aims his shotgun at him and shoots. Mm -hmm. Um, So Frederick Osborne is injured. Both men are taken over to Brunswick, which is the city on the mainland where there would have been medical attention to be given to Frederick Osborne. And and John Stevens obviously would have talked to authorities since he just shot a man. What I think is really interesting about our story. So Frederick Osborne dies three days later. He dies as lighthouse keeper. Mm -hmm. John Stevens, because nobody else knew how to run the lighthouse, comes back here. He's put under what I call lighthouse arrest Mm. and runs the lighthouse until the lighthouse service can get um, someone back in to replace him. So he's replaced his lighthouse keeper. But here's where him being local is important. Um, he's acquitted. It's ruled self-defense. So we know very little about why they argued or, or the circumstances of it, but it was enough that uh, the local courts said that he was not guilty. Wow. Wow. That's interesting. Should be a movie. It should. Well, <laughs> I also love to say, you know, if you're Frederick Osborne, you have a good reason to haunt the lighthouse, right? <laughs> if your killer was still here running your lighthouse and then he got off scot-free and lived the rest of his life very peacefully on the island, his descendants are still here, John Stevens are. Uh-huh. Um, and that is mostly why it's our infamous story is that Frederick Osborne is supposed to be the ghost of St. Simon's Lighthouse. Well, since you bring that up, <laughs> what's your take on, on all that? So as the person that has the office in here, I can say that I've heard lots of creepy noises around the lighthouse, but I have not heard Frederick Osborne's footsteps. Um, so that is really how you're supposed to uh, experience Fred. Mm-hmm. Um, the lighthouse keeper that the story originated with is a man named Carl Spenson, and him and his wife Annie lived here for 28 years. So they um, had a family here. The family grew up. They were here. Um, if anybody would know about a ghost, <laughs> I think that they would certainly know about a ghost. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Annie Spenson claimed that she heard footsteps in the lighthouse. She thought her husband was coming downstairs uh, to have dinner maybe, and he never showed up. And she maybe got a little annoyed. And Carl said, well, I was never coming downstairs. Uh, wow. So Annie is the one that says that she constantly hears footsteps and, and nobody's supposed to be in the tower. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're supposed to hear footsteps on a normal day, clearly when we've got lots of visitors, <laughs> lots of footsteps already on the tower stairs. Kind of hard to differentiate. You're not going to, hard to differentiate. You're not going to yeah. hear them. You probably don't spend too many nights here, I would imagine, though. <laughs> that is true. I've been here after dark. The first time um, I had just started working here, the first time I thought i possibly heard Fred. I was about to set the alarms on the building um, and it was almost six o'clock, so dark 
in the winter time. Mm-hmm. And I heard this huge thunk in the tower. And I, I was like, oh, no, Fred is coming for me. <laughs> um, but it was the light system turning on, oh, okay. which I had never heard. Um, so the light system engaged and the, the motor started turning. And, um, and that was that. So that was the first of many creepy noises that <laughs> I thought I was about to attribute to the ghost and, and didn't. Yeah, but that one was easy, easily explainable. Was that always the case when you've heard creepy noises? Um, no, sometimes it's taken a couple of weeks for me to figure it out. We had some flashing lights here that I would, was unexplainable to me for a while. And then mm-hmm. I realized somebody was using the dimmer incorrectly <laughs> and not actually turning the light off, causing them ah, to flash. Okay. So everything, like I said, everything's been explained. I've told I'm not receptive. So Fred hasn't come uh-huh. and, and talked to me. But I also like to think that as a lighthouse keeper, he thinks I'm doing a pretty good job. So he doesn't have to keep me in line. <laughs> that could be. That could be. Well, I always call myself an open-minded skeptic, so but I, I do think that there's usually other explanations for it, but I'm also open-minded, put it that way. Sure. Well, I, I like to tell people, you know, since he, he did die as lighthouse keeper, he's probably just here making sure everything's still ship shape. Right. Um, likes to, he was supposed to be very meticulous um, yeah. and, a, and a hard, hard boss to work under. So I think that maybe crept over into his afterlife, mm-hmm. as we like to think of it that way. Yeah. Well, another thing I always say about stories like this is that whether you believe or not in paranormal or whatever you want to call it, the spirits of the keepers of the past are with us, you know, literally or figuratively, they're, they're very much with us, so mm-hmm. no matter how you look at it. So are there any other stories about life here for the keepers and families that kind of stand out for you? So back to the Svensons who were here for 28 mm-hmm. years, they certainly have lots of stories that we could tell about them. One of my favorite is just really illustrative of um, life here at a lighthouse or life in general at a lighthouse. So we get lots of coastal storms here. We don't get a lot of shipwrecks. So that is something we're not certainly not at the graveyard at the Atlantic like um, like the Outer Banks is. But the Svensons were here um, with an assistant who I think has possibly one of the best assistant names. His name was Franto Molichek. Wow. And uh, so they were working here during a tropical storm, and one of the storm panes up in the lighthouse broke out, and they had to take a piece of plywood up and hold it there the entire night up against a tropical storm to make sure that the the light didn't obviously blow out and that the lens wasn't damaged. So we're very lucky to have our original lens, and it's due to the hard work of lighthouse keepers and assistants that uh, make sure that it endures through the years. And what uh, exactly is the lens that's still in operation here today? We have a third order fixed and flashing lens. So we've mm-hmm. got the solid white um, and then four beams of light uh, once every 60 seconds. So really okay. slow, <laughs> sedate lighthouse. Yeah, yeah. Kind of a, a complicated characteristic and, and yeah, sort of old fashioned in a way because now mm-hmm. the flashing lights tend to be a lot, a lot faster than that. Yes. I was reading uh, that the lighthouse now works in combination with a pair of range towers for local navigation. Yes. So we have two range towers in um, back behind the lighthouse, so, so to speak, uh, out in the river uh, surrounding St. Simons on the interior, uh, what would be the intercoastal waterway. And uh, they call it a shotgun approach. So if you put the lighthouse in the middle of the two range towers, it's going to take you in uh, the channel into St. Simons Sound and, and to the Port of Brunswick. So we are the harbor lighthouse for the Port of Brunswick. Mm-hmm. All right. Thank you for clarifying that. So I believe the last major renovation of the lighthouse was in 2010. 
Yeah, so 2008 to 2010, mm-hmm. the tower itself um, was repainted fully inside and out. We did a big turn off and then turn on of the light system um, to keep the light system safe during that period of time. We had a, a beacon on the observation deck to replace the historic beacon, but now we're back in shape and have been and just been able to spot paint and clean um, every other year. Mm-hmm. Any major uh, preservation type projects in the pipeline at this point? Nothing major um, for the lighthouse. We did quite a bit of work on the vent system up in the top. So we had some intrusion from birds making nests and things like that. So over the past couple of years, we've uh, redone the vent ball. Um, And so actually this past winter, when we have our slow season, we took the vent ball off and replaced some of the mesh up there and did all that. And and recently we replaced all the mesh in the, the venting system at the bottom of the lens room just again to prevent that water intrusion and and animal intrusion up there. Water and things away from the historic lens. Speaking of birds and animals, uh, one of the things St. Simons uh, and the islands around here in general are are known for is wildlife. Uh, What are some of the birds and other wildlife that are typically seen around here? And that's probably a long list. (laughs) Yeah, so we are very lucky. Georgia's Barrier Islands um, are relatively undeveloped, so we've got a lot of um, nature sanctuaries and, and many of the islands you can't get to. They're uh, either federal or state wildlife preserves. Um, so you've got all sorts of herons, sandpipers, plovers, things like that, any sort of beach bird that you might imagine, in addition to all the marsh animals. We were one of the states, luckily enough, to have a Marshland Protection Act very, very early on. So our marshes really are a great source of um, a nursery for baby animals, uh, sharks, dolphins, shrimp. So there's a huge shrimp industry here historically. Mm-hmm. And uh, it makes our water not so great because we've got huge tide swings. Water looks a little brown, but it keeps real estate low. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we're excited to have our beach and, and the wonderful natural resources here. So what do you think is the significance of this lighthouse, this light station to St. Simon's Island and the region? I think we're the most iconic building in our county. Um, We're certainly one of the oldest, uh, which matters to people. We really represent the coastal region. You know, lighthouse says coast, lighthouse says home. And uh, I think that's really reflected in how often people use us in logos and iconography, you know, whether it's um, for a business or whether it's for um, the county. So our county government uses the lighthouse and part of its logo. Um, so it's important to us to, to keep it up because it is such an iconic structure and, and has been here uh, for almost 150 years. So actually next year mm-hmm. is our 150th anniversary. Wow, that's exciting. Very exciting. <laughs> Any plans yet for that? We have lots of plans, uh, lots of things in the works. Um, Definitely cake is going to be included in this celebration. Um, We usually around that time of year, so the particular illumination date is September 1st. So we normally have summer concert series. So we're probably going to do some sort of party in connection with that. And then uh, certainly some stuff to honor our keepers Mm -hmm. um, and the history of the lighthouse. Cake, I'll have to put that on my calendar. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds good. I have one final question for you, and this one's for bonus points. What has been your favorite thing about your involvement with St. Simon's Lighthouse and Museum? Lots of great memories here. I think that probably what I will always remember about my time here, um, apart from all the history that I've learned, uh, is 
so you get really great access, obviously, to these historic buildings. So it's special to be able to, to keep them and to see them change. Um, but one of the best ways to access it is on the 4th of July. So St. Simon's really has a great 4th of July celebration. Uh, and it's settle, uh, celebrated right here down at the Pier Village where the lighthouse is located. And when you're at the top of the lighthouse, you get a great view of the fireworks, not only from St. Simon's, but from our neighboring Jekyll Island, Sea mm. Island, and even Brunswick. So I see six lighthouse shows from the top of the lighthouse. It's um, a pretty special memory. Um, not very many people get a, are able to do that. You have to work here in order to be at the top of the lighthouse. So that's a, a really small crowd. So I think, you know, enduringly, uh, lots of lots of great memories and people that I've met and things that I've been able to do. But that's certainly a, a once in a lifetime thing to be able to work at a lighthouse and, and see 4th of July. Yeah, that sounds really special. It really does. And it's just a special place. I've only been here a short time, but I can see that. And, it, you know, you drive up in the little parking area here, and you don't even have to – you can get, sit in your car and see the incredible view. It's just it, – like you said, it's iconic. It's just uh, – it's certainly one of the most pictured lighthouses around, That the way the house – the beautiful house is right in front of the, the tower. It's just absolutely gorgeous and framed by the trees. Mm-hmm. So uh, I'm sure I'm not the only person who's taken a lot of pictures or is kind of using the trees as a frame for the lighthouse. Definitely. We, um, we are very lucky to have uh, oaks around here, and in particular live oaks. And the, mm-hmm. the curvy branches of the live oaks are part of St. Simon's history um, and definitely work for some very scenic photos. Absolutely, yeah. I'm looking forward to getting home and going through my photos. Not that I want to leave here, either, <laughs> but it's just just great being here. You're always here. welcome to come back. <laughs> oh, thank you. I really hope hope I can. And uh, Sandy White, I want to thank you so much for, for hosting me here today and for taking this time with me. And you've got a very, very special place to work here. So thank you so much, Sandy. You're very welcome. You can learn more about the St. Simon's Lighthouse Museum on the Coastal Georgia Historical Society website at coastalgeorgiahistory.org. The site includes information about how you can volunteer at the Lighthouse Museum and also information about donating or becoming a member. St. Simon's is now on my list of favorite lighthouses, I'd say. Uh, It's beautiful and the organization does a great job with the exhibits in the museum. Another world-class lighthouse in Georgia is the one on Tybee Island, just a few minutes east of Savannah. Last March, in episode 108 of this podcast, I interviewed Sarah Jones, the executive director of the Tybee Island Historical Society. Also, in episode 121, I interviewed the author William Rawlings, who wrote an excellent book called Lighthouses of the Georgia Coast. I had a chance to sit down with both of them when I visited Tybee Lighthouse in early November. Let's recap a little about our guests and Tybee Lighthouse. Sure, Jeremy. An unlighted day beacon was established on Tybee Island in 1736, and a lighthouse was established in 1791. Along with the tower and its still active First Order Fresnel lens, three keepers' houses and other support buildings remain standing. After the light's automation in 1987, the Tybee Island Historical Society spent 12 years working toward a restoration of the lighthouse tower. The keepers' houses were restored over the next few years, and the light station became the property of the Historical Society in 2002. Sarah Jones became the executive director of the Tybee Island Historical Society in 2014. 
William Rawlings' first five books were suspense novels set in rural Georgia. Turning to nonfiction, he wrote three subsequent works about Georgia and Southern history. His book, Lighthouses of the Georgia Coast, was published earlier this year. As I said, I had the pleasure of speaking with Sarah Jones and William Rawlings in the offices at the Keeper's House at Tybee Island when I was uh, just there recently. So let's listen to that now. I am here at the Tybee Lighthouse in Georgia, and uh, this is really exciting for me. I'm with Sarah Jones and William Rawlings, both of whom I've interviewed for the podcast before. Sarah is the director here of the Tybee Lighthouse and Museum, and William Rawlings has written a wonderful book, uh, The Lighthouses of the Georgia Coast. Sarah, when I interviewed you, I remember I kept saying, I've got to get there, I've mm-hmm. got to get there. And now, uh, I think less than a, a year later, it's, it's actually happened. So thank you so much for being with me. Thank you for, for hosting me today, Sarah. Well, I appreciate it. Thank you it. for coming down. You're so welcome. So let me start, uh, before we talk about the lighthouse, let me just ask you, and this is for both of you, what is special about Tybee Island? Sarah, do you want to start? There is so much history on this island. The Tybee Island Historical Society controls and maintains the light, of course, in the lighthouse and the light station. But we're also in charge of the whole history of the island and, and researching that and, and safeguarding its treasures. And a lot of people don't realize that Tybee Island has three national historic districts in the space of three square miles. And we have an old army fortification here with all the Endicott period batteries intact. We just have so much history on this small little island. People don't realize it. Mm-hmm. And I think it's just unique. It's so unique to this, this island. I, I certainly agree with everything Sarah says, but also this is really where things started with Georgia. Uh, Georgia was founded originally as a colony in 1733, and the first settlers came in very close to Tybee Island mm-hmm. to go up to settling up the Savannah River and what later became the city of Savannah. Tybee Island itself has one of the oldest structures in the state of Georgia, which we'll talk about in a moment, I'm sure. And on top of that, it's just a great place. It's got a wonderful history of a, a recreational venue for almost a century and a half. Mm-hmm. And so it's uh, it's got a little bit of everything for everybody. So let's talk about the lighthouse now. And here's a, a toss-up question for, again, for both of you. Uh, William, maybe you want to start this time. But what what do you think makes Tybee special among Georgia's lighthouses? You start off by noting the fact that the current structure dates from 1733, and it's been modified, of course. But this is, as I said a bit earlier, is one of the oldest structures in the state of Georgia. It's also one of the 12 existing lighthouses that were here uh, and later taken over by the federal government after the formation of the United States. But it really dates from the, the lighthouse structure. The basic part of it dates from the British colonial period. And that plus the history of the Civil War is absolutely fascinating. It's, it's unique, it's instructive, and it's part of our shared history that's quite important. I agree. I should have you write our National Landmark status oh. nomination because we just can't get it passed. It's hard to believe, but this lighthouse, this light station, in fact, Tybee Island itself, but in particular the light station and the associated Endicott Air Fort, certainly qualifies being a national landmark. Mm-hmm. It's seeped in history. It seems uh, logical to me, that, you know, compared to the other about a dozen light mm-hmm. stations around the country that are national historic landmarks. This is a pretty complete station. It is a and complete station. And we're an octagon lighthouse, which in itself is, is unique. There aren't very many of those. That's true. The National Landmark uh, Nomination Committee said we were too much of a hybrid 
to qualify oh. because we built on top of the 1773 and 1867. So because we combined two time periods, it didn't quali- we didn't qualify. Never mind the fact that the, the reason we built on top was because the Civil War destroyed it. Right. That's, that's such part a of unique, the story. That's part of the story. Yeah. But Not that I could ever disagree with our, our government in any way, but in this case, I, I think I have to a little bit. <laughs> So, Sarah, one of the things that we didn't talk about last time, so I think it pretty much came about since then, is the uh, Tybee Lighthouse license plate. Mm-hmm. Can you tell me about that? Uh, we had our, rep- our local representative in the, the house, the Georgia house, Jesse Petrie. He put forward a, a bill to introduce a license plate for the Tybee Island Lighthouse. And it will have an image of the Tybee Island Lighthouse on it. It's been released. It's on our website, tybeelighthouse.org, if anybody would like to go check it out or contribute to it. But basically, we will get a – for everybody who purchases a license plate, we get a percentage of that fee every year that comes back to us and goes back into our general fund and can help support the Tybee Lighthouse. Mm -hmm. But it is only available to Georgia residents. So if if you're not a Georgia resident for the month of December and November, all donations are going to go towards that Mm -hmm. so that we can raise enough money and get them done and get that continual money coming in. Any chance you might be selling some sort of version of that in the gift shop? I Is hope that on the so. Works? I hope so. I hope we can get some type of resemblance of it. I don't quite know how that's going to work with the right. state. And Sarah, another thing that happened since I interviewed you, I saw uh, in the press at the time, was the theft of a historic doorknob from the lighthouse. Doorknob, yes. Yeah. We got what national happened? attention. We got international attention for that. Even it was reported in the Daily Mail over in England, mm. even. That went global. Uh, we had a gentleman who came to visit the Tybee Lighthouse, and he decided he wanted the doorknob, the historic <sighs> doorknob, off the top of the observation deck door. So he took it. And we had to kind of dig a little in our film footage of our security cameras and find out who took it. And then we called the Tybee PD, and then they put it on their website, and then everybody shared it, and then it went viral. And we had someone from Indiana call to turn in someone from Illinois because they knew him. And sure enough, we got it back. Somehow, miraculously, we got the doorknob back. And now it's welded into place. It's not going anywhere. Did the perpetrator suffer any consequences from uh, stealing the doorknob? We we did press charges against the, the gentleman who took the, I don't know if you call him a gentleman, but the man who took the doorknob. And should he ever come back to Georgia and, and get caught in Georgia, then yes, he has some, some warrants out for his arrest. He's been banned from the state. That's quite a, quite a distinction. Yeah, definitely from our site as well. Absolutely. Um, but yeah, it's just, I still don't know what inspires someone to say, oh, that doorknob's loose. I'm just going to take it. <laughs> Lots of crazy people in the mm-hmm. world, particularly someone that would... Uh, deface or otherwise defile such an important national mm-hmm. monument. Yeah. Not to mention the poor people who were out on the catwalk and couldn't get back in. Oh, my Lord, really? Yeah. I didn't realize well, that. We had to go up and open the door. That's when we realized the door knob. Because they were at the top saying, hey, we can't get down. Oh, wow. William, uh, we might go over a little bit of the same ground, but that's okay. Uh, I always love uh, hearing you talk about, about Georgia lighthouses, of course. Uh, so we talked about this last spring, but what do you think are some of the most important aspects of Tybee Lighthouse? 
You really have to integrate this into the entire history of Georgia because, you know, you get one object or one structure or one person or one event, and it's not the event so much or the thing. It's the connections that make it all part of a greater story. I've written several books on Georgia history, and the important thing is that you see this event or this structure or this, for example, this lighthouse, and it becomes emblematic of so many other connections. For example, as I said earlier, this um, Tybee Island was the port of entry to, uh, for Georgia development. Georgia development actually went up the Savannah River and spread subsequently from east to west. This ha uh, lighthouse played an important historic role in the early days of the Civil War. It's uh, representative of what the Confederate Lighthouse Bureau had to do, and that is dismantle essentially all of the lights in the Confederacy during the federal blockade after the, uh, that was instituted in April um, 1861 by Lincoln. And there's simply so many connections. You could take each one and write a long story about it. You could take each one and almost write a book about it. And that connection and the fact that it exists here, and as I said earlier, is one of the oldest existing structures in the state of Georgia is what I think is so important about it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'd like to say that if I hadn't already visited the Tybee Lighthouse, I would definitely want to come after hearing that. You made us sound wonderful. Yeah. Are things back to normal, I'm wondering? I, I was just uh, downstairs in the gift shop. It seems really busy. There's a lot of cars in the lot and everything. So it seems seems pretty busy here. Are things pretty much back to normal? Uh, do you still have uh, COVID restrictions as far as touring the lighthouse? Uh, we haven't really had many restrictions this year. Most of our restrictions uh, fell off towards the beginning of the year when we had that slump. We're mostly an outdoor site. So because we're so open, we don't require masks or anything like that. We certainly welcome them if you want to wear them in the buildings. But the lighthouse has its windows open. Mm -hmm. um, and it's just it's a kind of a, a free range site, for lack of a better way to describe it. So you, we just don't have a whole lot. We try and keep everything as clean as possible. Sure. Uh, so we're recording on November 1st. Uh, this is Day of the Dead, right? Dia de los mm -hmm. Muertos. Uh, but yesterday, of course, was Halloween, and I saw you had some haunted history tours mm -hmm. for Halloween. Is that a new thing? Uh, what, are, what are those all about? We've been doing them for about three years, and they're not specific to the lighthouse. I did note that we had an article come out that got some national attention that we're the most haunted lighthouse, and I don't quite know hmm. where that came from. Uh, sure, we've all had little experiences, but nothing to, to make us for sure haunted. Hmm. And our haunted tours are primarily a, not necessarily ghost stories, but they're more about the darker side of Tybee. So you, you know, you spoke about how we started Georgia, and, and Georgia basically started here. So you have the Yellow Fever and the Lazaretta Creek, and you have a, um, a bunch of not nice stories and so we've taken those and that's what we tell in our tour we're always mindful to keep it as historically accurate as we can mm -hmm. it's not like ghosts jumping out at you or you know the lady in gray walking around the catwalk it's not anything like that yeah haunted history tours sounds better than not nice stories yes it does <laughs> yeah it does. so you, you just said that some of us uh, have had experiences are very exactly the way you said it, but uh, does that, in you including yourself when you say that? Yes. I had one last week, actually, that I still can't quite figure out. And everybody's looking at me odd, but the funny thing is what happened to me happened to some guests a couple weeks prior, and I hadn't, I didn't know that. They told me that what happened to me happened to some guests. Yeah. And it was in the head keeper's cottage. There was a, a we have a wardrobe in the, in the parents' bedroom, 
and I had been sweeping and moving it around to gain access to a, a room behind it, and I I have to hug it to put it back in place so I knew the door was closed because I can't hug it unless the door is closed. And then I swept around it and went in the other room to talk to um, our building supervisor about some marks on the floor and where they could have potentially come from. And when I got, left the building, when I went to left, leave the building, I had to cut back through the uh, bedroom where the wardrobe was, and the wardrobe door was wide open. And it had been closed, and I knew it had been closed. Mm-hmm. And I didn't think anything about it. I just walked by and closed it, and then I stopped. And I thought, wait a minute, I know that was closed. And so I was telling the staff this story, and they said that, yeah, we had had some guests in there the week previous, and That's it had happened to them as well. Okay. So... <laughs> You're right, haunted wardrobe. We have lots of, of people, lots of sensitives who come through and they mm-hmm. say they can feel things or sense things. We had one who came through from the lighthouse and they insisted that um, there was a keeper at the very top who was dressed in a keeper's uniform. And we generally don't send anybody to the top in a keeper's uniform. And he was very upset. The keeper up there was very upset and wanted us to know that the keeper at the base of the tower was wearing the incorrect uniform. And indeed, he had mixed his summer and his winter uniforms up. Wow. And and so that was just a little bit of an odd fact. Because how would the visitor know that? Right. I have one more question for both of you. If someone is visiting Tybee Lighthouse for the first time, as I am right now, what are some of the most important things they should think about or things they should look at while they're walking around the place? For visitors, particularly people that are not familiar with lighthouses in general, we tend to focus on the fact that there's a lighthouse, yes. But a lighthouse was part of a system that involved um, other things, for example, range lights and buoys and, and uh, sometimes uh, ships at sea with lights. There were keepers, lighthouse keepers. There were support facilities. And the wonderful thing about Tybee Lighthouse is that it is a very complete light station. You can refer to the lighthouse, but what you're talking about is part of a much more complicated system. And this is probably one of the very best places, I believe, in the United States to see a complete light station with uh, structures that date back Mm -hmm. to the 1860s from the old Confederate barracks, and, of course, the lighthouse itself, which dates back to the 18th century. That's really the most important thing to me. I would say while you're touring the site to keep in mind that it's an activated navigation and that the ships are still using it and and that it's still a beacon for not only Tybee but for all those ships who are coming into the Savannah, Mm -hmm. Savannah River. Um, and it's amazing to be able to, to be around. So many lighthouses nowadays don't have their original lenses, much less are still operable, you know, and it's, they're getting fewer and fewer. And I think the fact that we still have that is an amazing thing. Yeah. Can you say a little bit more about your lens specifically? Oh, we have a first order Fresnel lens yeah. and it dates back to the 1867 rebuild. And it's it's still an active aid. It reflects the, the light 18 miles out to the ocean and the Coast Guard comes down quarterly and they maintain it and they clean it and they record any cracks that may have happened and they change out the bulb. Um, our bulbs went from very large to just a couple of inches tall now and a thousand watts. And yeah, it's, it's genuinely a partnership between the Historical Society and the U.S. Coast Guard. It's exciting to me just to drive into the parking lot and see that beautiful big lens up there. You know, there's only a handful of lighthouses on the mm-hmm. East Coast that still have yeah. first order. And I've been here for 15 years, and, and I'm not out here every night, but when I am out here at night and I look up and I see mm-hmm. that light, it just it makes you feel just 
it makes you feel good that that's that I'm a part of that and that we're a part of keeping that light going. I think that's a, a good place to end things for now. And I need to uh, to tour the, the whole place. Okay. I just got here a little while ago. So Sarah Jones and William Rawlings, thank you so much for spending time with me. It's, it's really special getting a chance to sit down with you. Thank you so much. Thank you. To learn more about Tybee Lighthouse, visit tybeelighthouse.org. That's T-Y-B-E-E lighthouse.org. The Historical Society has a personalized brick program. Engraved bricks line the pathways of the light station, and for a donation you can have a brick engraved as a memorial or as a gift. To learn more about the author, William Rawlings, visit his website at williamrawlings.com. His book, Lighthouses of the Georgia Coast, is available from online booksellers. Georgia doesn't have a lot of lighthouses, but St. Simons and Tybee are definitely must-see locations for a lighthouse buff traveling to the state. A big thank you to Sandy White, Sarah Jones, and William Rawlings for the interviews and for their hospitality. Be sure to check out uslhs.org to learn more about the U.S. Lighthouse Society's tours and everything else the Society offers. Next week's episode of Lighthearted will feature an interview about the Harbor Town Lighthouse in South Carolina, which is probably the best-known faux lighthouse in the United States. And I want to mention also that you can find out about this year's U.S. Lighthouse Society holiday ornament at uslhs.org. The ornament, as you know, Michelle, this year is Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouse in New Hampshire. Which is very near and dear to the both of us. It sure is, yeah. Celebrating its 250th birthday this year. And they did a beautiful job at the ornament. It really is a beautiful ornament. So again, you can find out more about that at uslhs.org. It's also on our uh, Friends of Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouse's website at portsmouthharborlighthouse.org. To everyone who works or volunteers at a lighthouse, thanks for everything you do. We're all on the same team. As always, thanks for listening and... Keep a good light. I'm gonna let it shine out in the dark. I'm gonna let it shine out in the dark. I'm gonna let it shine, let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. This little light of mine. I'm gonna let it shine This little light of mine I'm gonna let it shine This little light of mine I'm gonna let it shine Let it shine, let it shine